Well, as you're taking your seats, if you can also take out your Bibles and open to that passage, uh, Stephanie read, Malachi 2, 1 through 9. You know, nothing says the week before Christmas, preparing for Advent, like um, talking about spreading dung on your faces, right? Amen. Amen. A couple of you thought I, uh, an illustration might be helpful this week, uh, but I decided against that. We're continuing our study through the book of Malachi, and um, we're just coming out of two kind of questions that, that the Lord has responded to with the people of Israel. Uh, we opened the book of Malachi talking about how Malachi was writing and prophesying to kind of wake up the people. They had gotten sleepy. There was a lot of moral decay. Uh, they were neglecting the word of God. And two weeks ago, we looked at the opening question where God answers the question that the Israelites presented God, how have you loved us? Last week, we looked at the question, how have you despised my name? And this week in Malachi 2, 1 through 9, we're looking particularly at God's kind of rebuke, how he's going to respond to the priests, to the spiritual leaders of the Israelites. So if you have your Bibles um, and you haven't opened them yet, open to that passage, Malachi 2. We're just going to jump right in this morning. Malachi 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. I think right out of the gate, we see what Malachi is trying to show us, remind us about God, reveal to us about God, that number one, God is a commanding God. God gives commands. He gives commandments to his people. A commandment is an important rule given by God that tells people how to behave. It's a divine order. It is... Uh, authoritative direction. Probably the the most famous command and the most uh, prominent command that the Israelites would would hear and recite and and be instructed in is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Other commandments we know about that God gives the Ten Commandments. That God is the commanding God. When he speaks, he expects his people to listen and to obey him, to serve him, to love him with everything. And sometimes I think when we come and read the Old Testament, we might think that the Old Testament God is a little different than Jesus. You know, Jesus is this nice, passive, calm, kind of buddy, friend, shepherd, but the Old Testament God is like this angry, stern, authoritative God, and they're somehow different. But this this theme in the scriptures is true for all of God's people. God expects his people to obey him, and Jesus has maybe even some harsher words to say about this. The idea that God somehow changes or... uh, that Jesus wouldn't somehow have some of the strong language that we see here, I think is an incorrect way to think about God, is that God is is unified, he's one. He doesn't change. And if the idea of God being a commanding God, or God of being kind of a God of authority who gives commands for his people to obey, kind of rubs you the wrong way, or makes you feel uncomfortable, or 
you know, I don't really like that God. I'd prefer a God who exists to serve me and is there at my beck and call and, and I can kind of tell him what to do. Then I would, I would encourage you to think about how do you think about God and what are your thoughts about God? Are they from the scriptures? Are they from the word? Or are they from culture or uh, the way that God is kind of described or portrayed in TV shows and cartoons as God kind of being this old man with a long white beard. He's got naked babies around him with bows and arrows kind of floating up in the clouds. I don't know if that image rings true in you. I don't, I don't know what, like, that's just kind of, sometimes you think about God, you think about that. Think about these kind of fluffy little angels up and babies up in heaven, with cherubs and diapers. You might think of God more of like a heavenly Santa who just exists to kind of take you up onto his lap and give you everything that you want. Doesn't expect anything out of you. We need to inform and shape our thoughts about God based on the scriptures alone. Because the scriptures teach us that he is to be obeyed and honored above all things. Talked about last week how he's to be feared. He's to be revered. He is to be uh, deeply respected. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that God's people are to obey him. And that obedience to him comes out of love for him. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 2, 3, and this we know that we have come from him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfective. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walks. Jesus' own brother, James, says in James 1.22, Be not hearers of the word only, but doers of it. What Malachi is trying to show here to the priests, what God is trying to show to the priests, is to expose them of their hypocrisy, saying, yeah, we follow God, we love God, but you're not obeying his commandments. And he gives them this command, this serious warning. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Now, what in the world is this curse that God is talking about? If you will not listen, I will send the curse. Seems like there's a couple options uh, that God might be referring to here. One found in Leviticus, Leviticus 26. I know probably some of your favorite books of the Bible, uh, Leviticus. Probably just reading that in this week, I'm sure. Uh, Leviticus 26. I would encourage you to write this down and look it up at another time. I don't, I don't have time to read through all the verses, but I would encourage you to look this up uh, to get a little taste of and, and see a little bit of God's heart in kind of his, his warnings against if you don't listen to me. Leviticus 26, 14 through 39. God says, if you will not listen to me, if you won't do my commandments, if your soul abhors my rules, so that if you do not do my commandments, but break my covenant, then this I will do to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever, 
that consume the eyes and make your heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and, I will, and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and, the, and they shall flee. Uh, you shall flee them when they pursue you. And God kind of lists out a bunch of strong warnings to his people, just in different, in different ways throughout the verse. It says in, in verse 19, in spite of this, if you don't listen to me, I'll discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And then he lists out some things that he's going to do. And then right after again, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to discipline you again, sevenfold for your sins. If you don't listen to me, if, in spite of this, if you still don't listen to me, if you still walk in contrary to my rules, I will discipline you again. All throughout that passage. Another one that, that uh, might be referred to here is in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 20. God says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments, and set his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Your city will be cursed, your field will be cursed, your basket will be cursed, the fruit of your womb will be cursed, the fruit of the ground will be cursed, you shall be cursed when you come in, when you go out. The Lord will send confusion and frustration to you. I think you get the point through these passages that it's not a good thing to disobey God. Right? We can agree on that. It's not a good thing to ignore God's word. This is what Malachi is getting at. what Jesus gets at too when he talks about the foolishness of not obeying God's word. It's like building your house upon sand. It's just going to collapse. And God's going to send the curse because you see in verse 2 that if you will not listen or if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. Taking it to heart involves not just kind of paying God lip service. Taking it to heart means uh, not making it a duty, but a delight. Now, in the Hebrew uh, ideology, the Hebrew word of heart, it's a little bit different than how we describe heart in the English language. Uh, the Hebrew word for heart kind of encompasses what we might think of both our heads and our hearts. It's kind of the center of the intellect, the emotions, the morality, uh, the decision-making. Like in, in our society, in our culture, we have... You know, you can think with your head and you can think with your heart. And sometimes we can kind of separate those two. Like the, the head is the center of intellect. The heart is the center of emotions and feelings, right? Like we don't give a card to a loved one that says, I love you with all my head. Right? It would just, like, that would be really awkward. Or we don't give someone a, a, a card, like on Valentine's Day, that is like a, a big brain. That's kind of like a brain that you open up. Or a, a head. It's a heart, right? In the Hebrew thought, uh, the heart was the center of emotions, feelings, uh, the center of someone's physically, emotionally, intellectually, morally. The heart is where knowledge was stored up. The heart is where decisions were made. Uh, the heart is where kind of commitment and convictions were placed. So to set something to the heart was to determine to decide a course of action or to be an awareness of information and truth. So setting, uh, setting to the heart to honor God's name was that they were actually going to do something about it. 
they were going to decide and they were going to do. They were going to repent. They were going to turn from their wicked ways. They were going to turn from their superficiality, their lip service, their hypocrisy. They were going to turn from their sin and honor God. And God says, if you do not do this, I will send the curse. I will punish you. I will discipline you. He says, indeed, I've already cursed your blessings. It was one of the, the jobs, the, the roles, the duty of the priest was to speak blessings over the people. Probably the most famous of the blessings uh, of one of the priests we see in, in scriptures and found in number six. Some of you might know this. It says in number six, 22, the Lord spoke to Moses, say, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine to you, upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This was one of the, the responsibilities, of the jobs of the priest was to bless the people. And God says, I, I've cursed them. And in verse 3, it says, behold. It's kind of a, a big word in your, in, in the, in your Bibles, in the scriptures, Behold. This word behold is the first time that this word occurs in the book of Malachi. It occurs five times throughout the book. It's to give importance to what is about God is about to say. It's supposed to bring them to listen, to pay attention to, hey, what I'm about to say is important. Now, behold, as a sense of urgency, God says, I will rebuke your offspring. That seems a little intense, right? What do they do? Wasn't it about the, the priests? As I was reading and studying about this, um, one commentator said that since the priests considered it a duty, a wearisome burden, God would remove them and their descendants from service, almost as if God was saying that if service to me is so bad, I'm going to free you and your sons from it. I'm going to remove you from serving me in this way as, as a priest. But we know in verse 3 that that's not the most intense part of it. God says he's not only going to rebuke your offspring, but he will, quote, spread dung on your face. Now, when I first read that, I was a little bit like, okay, what's going on here? What does that mean? Right? Is it just me? Anytime I see dung in the Bible... Like, that, that's a little bit shocking to me. What is God saying here? And once I got past the initial shock, I tried to look at what other translations said about this. Maybe they could shed some light on what this verse means. The New American Standard Bible says this, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring and will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. I don't normally uh, read this translation a lot, but the New Living Translation says it like this, I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices. I will throw you on the manure pile. NIV says this, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung of your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried away with it. So splatter, spread, smear. This word dung here, it's, it's, it can be translated the, the fecal matter, uh, the sense the awful are the kind of what's left in the intestines of the sacrifices, 
Uh, it refused to the waste, the inner parts of a sacrificed animal. So it included the sacrifice, uh, the intestines, the stomach. This is like that thing. If you're a hunter, if you've ever seen someone hunt or skin an animal, you know that besides like having a sharp knife, one of the one things that you never want to do is, is puncture the, the gut. Because it's, I mean, it's awful, right? Well, it's one of the things that you, you don't want to do. This is, what, this is what this word is getting at. Uh, the inner parts of the sacrifice animal would be disgusting. It would be horrible. This dung, this waste from an animal sacrifice was considered unclean. So after the sacrifice was made and they would remove this from the animal, they would literally take it outside of the camp and burn it. And God is saying that he was spraying dung on their faces as a figure of speech, as a strong il- illustration saying that I will defile you and I will remove you from service. I will take you out. D.A. Carson says it like this. Since the priest had defiled God, in chapter 1, verse 7, he will figuratively defile and disqualify them for priestly ministry. The humiliating act of God rubbing dung on the faces of the priest rendered them unfit for temple service since they were ritually unclean. Like the dung taken away from the sanctuary and burned, they too will be carried off. That's what Malachi is getting at. And you see, just in this strong language, God's heart, God, the repulsiveness God has for people who are professing to be leaders, who are called to be leaders, who are dishonoring him. You see God's heart, his strong feelings of anger towards those who bring humiliation to his name and that he would promise to humiliate them. This command is very similar to one that we see in Hosea 4, where God basically says, uh, because you have rejected me, I'm going to reject you and your offspring. The reason we see God doing this in verse 4 is that God says, so you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. The reason God's doing this is because he is committed to the covenant. He is faithful He will not forget his covenant. He is faithful despite uh, the sins and wickedness of his people. God's promise to Levi and Levi's descendants that they would kind of be the clan, they would be the tribe of priests. Uh, He wants to honor that and protect that. He's going to take you out and and this is how you know that uh, my covenant will stand and this is my command. I want to preserve and protect the promises that I make. We can rest in this, that God is a faithful God. He is true to his promises. And he's doing this to also show how serious he is about his holiness, about sin, about unrepentance. One of the things that I think is so fascinating in this is that because the, the Levites had broken the covenant, they had disobeyed God, that God had every right to break his side of the covenant to be done with them. And you see in this the grace of God. That although they were despising him, they were uh, profaning him, they were not honoring him, he is still going to be faithful to the covenant. You see how in in verse 6 too, he's kind of looking back in verse 5, excuse me, about reminding the priest of what the covenant was supposed to be about. 
He's trying to call them back, show the difference of this is how the priests were supposed to behave. This is how they were supposed to act. This is, this is how they were supposed to live in light of this covenant with the tribe of Levi. He says, my covenant was one of life and peace. And I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. When God says my covenant was one of life and peace, the word peace there is this shalom. It speaks to full, happy life and well-being. We see that when God made this promise, he fulfilled it. He gave them life and peace. As they held up their part of the covenant, their part of the responsibility, God honored that. He gave them life and peace. And you see, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy where God lists out his commands as the kind of specifications of the covenant, you see the great connection, the correlation between obedience to God and full life. Obedience to God and things going well for you. As we listen to God, as we obey the laws, we maintain the covenant, it leads to life. We see the people were to respond, they were obligated to fear God, to stand in wonder of him, to revere him, to respect him, to honor him, and they had failed at doing that. These priests were not standing in awe of his name, and therefore he was trying to discipline them and show them. Verse 6, he says, true instruction was on his mouth. There was no wrong found on his lips. The word there, true instruction, literally means instruction of truth. The priests had a responsibility to speak truth, to be the messengers of truth, to teach the people about the knowledge of God as revealed in his scriptures and revealed in the law. The priests were responsible for teaching the people what God required of them in his law. But the priests were also responsible for not only talking the talk, for being good teachers, but for actually living it out, for being a guide. See there in verse, yeah, letter half of verse six, for walking with me in peace and righteousness. This gets out of the way of maintaining a right relationship with God. Not defiling yourself. The priests were to guard knowledge. Verse seven. They were to maintain, they were to watch, they were to preserve. They were to turn the people away from sins, from iniquity, from transgressions. One commentator described it like guarding a water supply. It was kind of the, the role of the priests. That in the life of a town, a community depended on clean water. Without clean water, if the water got defiled, contaminated, dirty, life would dry up. The priests were to be water keepers, guarders of the well, guardians of the purity of the life-giving source of God's word. Went on to say, as the life of community depends upon the keeper of the water supply to guard the supply from loss or contamination, excuse me, so the life of Israel depended upon its priest to preserve God's written word and effectively to dispense it when men should seek it. Such continues to be the responsibility of those called to be teachers of God's word. If we permit its sense to be contaminated or its power to be restricted by the intellectual currents of the day or by our own convenience or by our own sinful carelessness, then we have betrayed our trust and violated our calling and deserve the same curse threatened upon these priests. 
to be despised and humiliated above all people and finally removed from service as false teachers. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for our church. That if I start contaminating the water, if I don't guard the knowledge, if I don't speak the truth, if I'm swayed by convenience, if I'm swayed by cultural norms or what feels comfortable to me, spread dung on my face and get me out of here, God. I pray if God ever leads you out of the mountain church and you are in a church that, that God would take out leadership who leads you astray in this way, who does not speak the truths of God's word. The priests, spiritual leaders, pastors are to be messengers of God in the way they speak to people and inform them from God's word alone. You see how the priests have not done that. Verse eight, you but you have turned aside from the way. See, the first failing of the priests was they failed within themselves. They were not leading themselves. But not only that, they turned aside from the way, they caused many to stumble by your instruction. So instead of instructing the people and calling them out of iniquity, instead of uh, causing them to avoid sins, they were actually leading people to sin. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. That word corrupted could also be translated to, to render useless. It's the same word that's translated in, in Exodus 8.24 when God uh, sends the great plagues and the plague of the swarm of the flies comes to the house of the Pharaoh and his servants' houses and all throughout the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarm of flies. That's the same word there, ruined, corrupted. Same word that... Moses uses in Exodus 21, 6, when an eye is injured and destroyed, is rendered useless. That same word, useless, destroyed, corrupted. It's what Malachi is talking about here. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. And so I will make you despised and abased before all people. I'm going to make you an example. Insomuch as you don't keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now, this partiality could have been that uh, the priests were allowing those who were kind of influential, those who uh, were higher up in society to kind of get away with things that they weren't supposed to. These might have been the people who were offering the lame sacrifices. They're the ones who were dishonoring God and were against God's word. The priests were kind of showing partiality in that sense. They could have been shown partiality by accepting bribes, by favoring the rich, by neglecting the poor and powerless. And I wanted to read from you guys a quote from this in, in regards to how this principle applies to our life today uh, by two guys who wrote a commentary on Haggai and Malachi, Taylor and Clarendon. It says this, Whenever teachers of God's word sacrifice the message of that word because it is inconvenient, offensive, or politically incorrect, for some or all of their hearers in their contemporary context, they have betrayed both the divine master and those entrusted to their care, whom they are leading to disaster. They also show that they really despise and profane the Lord's name and his worship. And so upon invite upon themselves the Lord's curse as false teachers. At the very least, this could involve the eventual loss of respect among the people once dependent on them, 
At worst, the penalty could involve the woes that Jesus left unspecified, but compared to being thrown into the sea attached to a millstone. This last point I think we see from the passage is that God is a just God. He's not going to tolerate people leading, false teachers leading them astray. He's going to vindicate. He also has a heart to protect his people from false teachers. He cares about his people so much that he punishes those who are leading them astray. He has a heart to protect his people from false teachers, from these despised and abased priests. But all throughout this passage, I don't think we can forget all the way back from verse 2. All throughout this passage, I don't think we can neglect or forget the grace of God. You might think that's a little strange. You're just talking about all these punishments, the rebukes, the spreading of dung on your face, and you think, these are strong, harsh words. And they are. But if you look all the way back to verse 2, you see the grace of God in this conditional phrase. If. See the conditional nature of this. If you do not listen. This highlights the, the possibility of God's mercy being bestowed. This is, I think, God warning and trying to show his people, repent, come back to me. This highlights the possibility of God's mercy being extended to those who repent. But I think verse also two, verse two also points to something that's much deeper and much greater. It ultimately points to the coming of the good and final and ultimate high priest. Jesus Christ. If you just flip a couple pages to your right in your Bibles, you, you get into the Gospels. And you hear about a guy named Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin Mary. A man who came into the world who was God in the flesh. You read throughout the Gospels and you see that Jesus lived a life listening perfectly to the Father. He did what these priests did not do. He honored him above all things. He listened to him. Jesus is the one and good and true high priest, as the author of Hebrews says. He listened to God so deeply, he was so committed to God's word that he ultimately went to a cross where he served as our substitute. On the cross, Jesus was publicly humiliated. Jesus, in a sense, had dung spread on his face. He was removed outside of the city and sacrificed and slaughtered on our behalf. He was dishonored. He was despised. And he did so so that we would not be despised. Jesus took dung on his face so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus served as the good, true, ultimate high priest who intercedes on our behalf. Jesus serves as the true messenger of the Lord of hosts, who speaks perfectly on God's behalf, who offers life and forgiveness to all who walk and who offers the same thing. This covenant that we read about with the Levites, Jesus offers the same thing, a covenant of life and peace. Do you know this Jesus? Are you in this covenant of life and peace? If you don't know Jesus, I would love to talk with you after the sermon. I'd love to get to share with you the difference that Jesus makes, the covenant that he offers now. 
But if you do identify as a Christian, if you call yourself a son or daughter of God, if you call yourself a disciple, a follower of Christ, what do we do with this passage? How, how should we apply this to our life? What are some things that we can tangibly take and, and do from this passage? And I don't have an exhaustive list. I, I pray that as we've been working through the text, God has it's been speaking to you and God is revealing things in your own life that, that you can be working on. But I think as I was studying for this, there was kind of three big things that stood out to me on how we can apply this passage. Three big things we can learn from Malachi chapter two, verses one through nine. Number one, start, sustain, and end your day in the word. Now, if you grew up in the church or you've been Christian for a number of years, you know that, well, you hopefully know, that Christians should be about the word. This should be a daily part of our life. And if you've been listening to my preaching for a year, year and a half, you know that this is, I talk about this a lot. And maybe you're even thinking, yeah, yeah. Here goes Daniel again from the Bible telling us that we need to read it. Yeah, we know that. My Sunday school teacher told me that. My dad has always taught me that. My pastor taught me that. We need to be reading our word. Is your life marked and characterized by a deep commitment to the word? Why? Why should we be about the word? So we can check it off our box? So we can appease the pastor, get, get, him off his, get him off our back? So we can appease our gospel community leader? asking us what we're reading, what God is doing in our life. Because just like the priests, we, the people of God, are prone to forget, are prone to wander, are prone to neglect, are prone not to listen to the word. I think one of the main ways that we do this is not necessarily by willfully disobeying God's word, but by not doing the commands that we don't know about. by these sins of omission. We must fight to listen because we can get sleepy, calloused. We must fight to be attentive. We must fight to listen. We must fight to be in the word because if not, God warns us what will happen. It gives us an example of what will happen in these priests. I was reading in Deuteronomy this, I've been reading in Deuteronomy this past month I wanted to share with you a passage that really got me thinking about some things. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. God says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do it, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that which the Lord sworn to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. I love this verse three. He humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And he did this that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I hadn't picked up on that before. Why did God let us like feed his people with manna every day? to remind them they don't live on bread alone. Got me thinking about, why did God create us to eat? 
Why do we need to eat three, four, five times a day? I think number one, well, God is a good God and he is a God of pleasure. He wants us to enjoy things. So the reason that God created us taste buds even, we get to enjoy the food that we eat, that food that we need. If we look at me here, why, did, why do we need to eat? This is getting to a speculation here, I think. But I wonder if God created us a desire to, to eat. God created this appetite that we have for food, for bread. God created us that if we don't have this bread, we hunger, like our stomach tells us, hey, feed me. Is if that is it's to point us to a deeper spiritual reality, that we need God's word. I could be way off on that. I was just thinking about it this week. But I wonder, if we need physical bread, how much more do we need spiritual bread? I wonder if in this physical reality that God reminds us in, he's trying to point us to something deeper, a physical, a spiritual reality. We need the words of God often and throughout our day. We need to be committed to the word. I don't know about you, but as I was reading through this and I was studying through this, I thought, okay, if the priests had a covenant of life and peace, why did they turn from it? Isn't that what we kind of long for and strive for? If God was supplying them with blessings, why would they turn from the covenant? I see myself so much in these priests. I am so prone to forget I am so prone to wander. I am so prone to get neglectful. I'm so prone to forget what Jesus says in John 10.10. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, I oftentimes think, Jesus, you saved me from hell. You can stay up on your little shelf. I know how to find life abundantly in myself. I'm going to pursue this abundant life and what I think brings me abundant life. A nice house, a nice car, a career. Proving myself to be a good church planter. People can honor me and respect me. Who wouldn't want this abundant life that Jesus promises? Who wouldn't want the peace that Jesus promises? Who wouldn't the rest that Jesus promises? It takes supernatural faith to believe this. It takes working of God to remind us of this. I think we can all be honest and say that if we were to look at our life and what we're striving after and what we're trying to seek to do, that we would want life, peace, success, riches, comforts, right? What is the source of those? Where are we looking to find those? Many Christians who profess that Jesus is their peace, their security, their joy, they don't live like it. I know I don't. We know that all humanity is striving and searching for this, for happiness. All humanity is longing and striving for comforts, for satisfaction, for joy, for security. But we have to remember, if we want these things, where they're ultimately found in. 
I think we need to remember the same Jesus who promises an easy yoke. Come to me all who are weird and I will give you rest. The same Jesus who promises abundant life also says that to get these things, we must die. If you want the life and the life in Christ that takes a dying to self, a continually dying to what you think is more satisfying, a continual renewal of your mind, strengthening of your faith. Jesus says in Matthew, 20, Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can't have this abundant life and this peace still searching the things that you think will give those to you outside of Christ. It's not gonna work. Jesus has even stronger language in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a kind of a counterintuitive, isn't it? You want life, you want satisfaction, you want peace? Die. Lay down your life. Give up your pride. Give up what you think will give you those things. And the reason that I say all these things is that it takes supernatural faith and faith that comes, as the Bible says, from the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. I don't think we can go through our life and, and try to find this peace and have this covenant of life and, and joy and hope characterize our life if we're not characterized by the word. Does that make sense? We might want those things, but if we're not in the word daily, it's not going to tangibly flesh out in our life. Secondly, second principle, our application for today, is number two, we have a responsibility to be on guard, to be watchful, and to correct according to the scriptures. Malachi and the rest of God's word and scriptures are clear that God will hold leaders and his people accountable passage that uh, humbles me that I come back to often to remind me of the great responsibility of being a leader. If you desire to be a leader, to be a teacher of the word, don't forget this verse, James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Although this is very clear that teachers will be held responsible, uh, God's word is clear that Christians, that all of God's people will be held responsible. Jesus is clear throughout his word and throughout the gospels that we must be on guard against false teachers. We must be on watch. We must be vigilant. There's false teachers out there who will lead people astray. We must be careful of deceivers, manipulators, the one who are subtly leading God's people astray from the gospel, from the scriptures. And I ask that you would do this to, to me. Correct me. Test what I say according to the scriptures. Ask questions. 
because I want to know and remind myself constantly that I'm going to be held responsible for what I teach at this church, how I preach to you. But also know, brothers and, and church, that we have responsibility to correct one another. If you see your brother or sister in your gospel community, in your life, that is either going astray or leading others astray, we have a responsibility to restore them, to speak truth to them. Number three, God's people, we are responsible for being his representative to the nations. Although we see here that leaders and elders, pastors, shepherds, priests will be held to a higher standard and that in a sense, all God's people will be held accountable one of the things that we are going to be held accountable to is this reality, this representative, being his witness. We have a responsibility to represent, to be, in a sense, the priest to people in our life. God's words, God describes his people as his ambassadors. God describes us as a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 1 Peter 2, a people who are called for his own possession, who might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. God didn't call you to sit, to be on the sidelines. It says he called you out of darkness into light to proclaim the excellencies of him. Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I ask you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they might speak against you as, if they speak against you as evildoers, they might see the good deeds that you do and glorify God on the day of visitation. We can't come to this passage in Malachi 2, 1 through 9 and think, Man, sure glad I'm not a priest. Sure glad I don't have that responsibility. God calls all of his people a royal priesthood. Church, we can't have this mentality that, well, it's only for, for Will and Nathan and the leaders, the pastors. Those are the ones who are really to represent. We kind of get this little pass. We're not leaders. I'm not an elder. I'm not a priest. I'm not a pastor. There's kind of a, a lower standard for me. I don't have to be as much of a representative. I don't have to do as much witnessing. Are we as a church committed to this? Committed to being God's representative wherever he's placed us. We talk about our sphere of influence, at our work, in our neighborhoods, in our family even. Are we committed to this? What are, what are some ways that we are trying to seek to do this? Because this is our command, this is our duty, this is our call from God to be his representative, to be his ambassador. I want to say as I close that these strong words for the priest, these strong words, uh, these, these curses, these warnings can be just as true of us. 
that we are just as guilty as the priests. We are committing the same offense as the priests in Malachi if we fail to speak truth, if we fail to declare the gospel, if we fail to strive to represent him well, because we might maybe fear man more than God. We fear the loss of approval. We fear ending relationships. We fear all of that more than honoring God above all things.